Um, I won't give the uh, talk a, a title because I can't think of one, and I'll give it at the end. And between now and the end, I'll just ramble on. <laughs> um, one of the facets, aspects, which brings people into uh, circumstances uh, like this is the overview uh, of one's uh, life, either in the short or long term, and the sense and the feeling of some fresh steps um, needed to be made. And the past uh, and our way of living can and does obviously bring about tremendous influences upon us. And we can look at the, the general flow of where our life is going. And generally that shows itself most clearly to us through the kind of uh, roles which we have. And we take the role of work, study, uh, relationship, the blood role, parent, child, etc. The roles that we have with friends and close ones, the role from employer to employee, etc. And we look at the totality of our day and of our weeks, months and years and we say, here is my life going on and it's manifesting and expressing itself most clearly and specifically through a number of roles. And this builds up my personality, it builds up and establishes my identity and who I am. And when you and I relate to other people, they ask us who we are, and what we do, etc. Usually we specify that most easily and clearly through the kind of roles that we have. For some of us, the roles which we have are fairly clear, um, specific and all too familiar to us. And there are others, including others here, who may not have at the present time any clearly defined roles or the roles themselves are fairly much in the short term and thus the view into the future uh, carries with it a certain um, unknown factor because the roles that one is participating in at present are temporary. So, anyway, two kinds of situations, the continuity of roles and the roles which are changed and not so fixed and thus one is not so easily identifiable with any structured kind of roles. The affirmation of uh, roles is such that it obviously requires cooperation between oneself and others for the role and therefore the identity through the role to appear. But then with that can come the collapse of roles very easily and very quickly. And for some, in the collapse of roles, in the collapse of forms of relationship in, in life, they can emerge out of it quite some degrees of confusion. And the confusion can be what brought about the end of the role that may have been initiated by another person or persons or it may come from within oneself. And in either case, the degree of confusion which can arise can be just as significant and we have perhaps all been through the situation where obvious example of being in a close relationship intimate relationship and oneself ended the role and that can bring upset confusion for the one who ended it and equally for the one who was on the receiving end of the decision so whether one is in control of making the decision or whether others or circumstances are, personal or impersonal as they might be, nevertheless, the break of the role, if there isn't the support of wisdom, 
will generate confusion. And this confusion which arises obviously can be unpleasant and in the unpleasantness of it kind of swamp us and really consume our days, weeks, months, whatever. Because of the unpleasantness of it all in confusion, the view which arises at the end of it um, can be a very strong fixed judgment about the feeling of loss and separation. And therefore disappointment and pain, sorrow, regret, uh, guilt, sadness, all those can be an outflow from confusion ending with a certain kind of result and that result being the residue which we carry. In the midst of confusion, with the uncertainties and the unknowns and the inability to explain to oneself what happened or what is happening or what might happen in the future, easily the outcome of this is control. To try to have control. And sometimes the initial decision, if if it's an internal decision about ending something, might be the wish to have more control over one's life. But, but rather, for a moment, just keep them with the confusion. And where, where there is the confusion which is going on, it's not easy to hang in with the confusion, to stay steady and clear with it. And, as a result, one tries to have control over the situation. To give you a very... Uh, I think quite good example in fact the reason that I'm, I'm late is that I just had a phone call from uh, a friend of mine whose partner has just had um, a breakdown the last uh, couple of days and in the um, breakdown the partner went into a great deal of uh, confusion and drove, I don't to give too much to the detail, but drove uh, away from the home in the, in the night, had, wasn't wearing glasses to such a degree of uh, confusion, crashed the car, uh, some cuts to the head, taken to hospital, and this internal confusion of quite some degree was, and is, still continuing. And mi- mixed in with memories and plans and metaphysics and religion and and a state of turmoil and confusion and so she telephoned about dealing and working with this rather difficult and painful situation that was not altogether unexpected and in dealing with it there's confusion for one person there's confusion for the partner as well and when the confusion is tinged with fear and all the fears, that way that fears might arise. It tends to bring out of oneself, very easy, the desire to have control over the circumstances. And this desire to have control over the circumstances is to try to get a handle and a grip on the confusion. And unfortunately, though one may be able to do that through the force of will, through um, um, circumstances there, it may not, in the long term, answer anything. Because the fear is still there, there's the potential for confusion, and in the potential for confusion, things can, as we say, go out of control. All the necessities may be appropriate and, and relevant, for dealing with situations which are very distressing, which appear out of control, such as uh, in the circumstances of uh, one individual that I'm describing there. But it takes a lot of wisdom, it takes uh, skill, clear motivation, and finding ways, and not necessarily easy, of course, and a great deal of confusion, to what in therapy is called 
the reality check. That where there's a great deal of turmoil and confusion taking place for the person, to find ways and means, in a way that we do in a much more refined way, of knowing who we are, where we are, what we're in relationship to, what is observing what is happening around, being able to report that, being able to report our experience, keeping in touch and in tune with all of that reality check in the language of psychotherapy to help dissipate some of the confusion without exercising and imposing control so that the here and now, which is the reality check, gives us an ability and a resource and a refuge to be in, in the state of confusion. Because when confusion has some intensity, we lose contact with the here and now. Hardly seeing, hardly hearing, hardly smelling, hardly touching, hardly experiencing bodily life, hardly knowing who we are, because the confusion is the rule. And thus, the here and now serves and does serve as an important refuge and resource for us. Yvonne was speaking about this uh, the other, other evening uh, with you. And we need to eat both with ourselves and with each other, as it were, to keep checking in on the significance and of the connecting factor that the here and now offers us in the state of confusion. When there is confusion owing to separation, the heart, the emotional life, is unusually vulnerable. Unusually vulnerable. Because if there is blame which is taking place, it may be to the personal forces, the influence of somebody else, it may be to the system that produces it, let's say unemployment and uh, policies, economic realities, and all of that, that when there's confusion and then there's a reaction that's going on inside, the views and the opinions which are formed tend to be formed out of the reaction. The reaction, the strength of it, the negativity of it, the aversion, the thoughts for revenge, the emotional life of reaction in the confusion may and will fade away. Why has this happened to me? Why is this going on? And then all the blame and everything else that gets generated. The emotion, as I say, in time, with the confusion, may fade away. But what can happen is what one is left with is the core impression. And that core impression, in this case, anti, against, um, um, critical towards, that keeps repeating itself. And sometimes there is, really is, as I was speaking the other evening, the unforgiving mind, which is there. No emotion, but the thought is unforgiving. Can't let it go. Carrying it on. So when confusion happens, not always, it's a collapse of roles, or it's a collapse of meaning in roles. It might be the best that's ever happened to us. Confusion can be the breaking off of the relevance of the old. All the patterns, all the associations, all the meaning, all the purposes we have given to life and sometimes, despite the difficulty of having all that cut off, either through one's own act of intention or through another's, the confusion becomes an important stepping stone into something else which doesn't have a history to it. it. It can be hard in the midst of it, of course, to be able to recognize confusion um, as a liberating force. It seems quite the opposite. It seems to be, one seems to be stuck in it. <coughs> But nevertheless, it does have, with uh, uh, an awareness, an opportunity for something out of confusion, for something else to flower and come through, which couldn't come through, simply because one was so identified with roles, positions, and uh, a, a conventional sense of who I am. 
And it's not unusual, therefore, where there has been quite a significant break of familiarity in our life, that there's the confusion, and then a few days, weeks, months, year or two later, we are saying to others, boasting, in fact, to others, that period of confusion, that which I had to go through, was the best thing that ever happened to me. But there's a time gap, sometimes it's lifetimes gap, between the recognition of it and the acknowledgement and appreciation of it and the event. Spirituality is to end that time gap. Can we discover in the midst of certain confusions in, in life something which is potentially liberating about it? And therefore we don't have to wait for the long recovery for that appreciation. We can actually sense the validity and the authenticity of it in the midst of it. Sometimes that does actually come through. Even when there's some upheaval and turmoil in our life, we can see in the midst of all of that how necessary it is, how appropriate it is, and the more we are challenged, and the more there's upheaval, the more the sense of the necessity of it for our existence. There's things to be discovered there which we couldn't see without the commotion. It all has a relationship to the other themes which were suggested for the talk, and that is the relationship of the uh, um, inner to the outer. And perhaps one of the major major debates which uh, continue to go on when people look and address the plight and situation of the of the world around us and of the um, uh, the way that's impregnated in a way with numerous uncertainties there. And it can appear when people come on retreat or meditate in the mornings or evenings or whatever to be a kind of um, uh, navel-gazing, uh, self-interested uh, activity in which one is in fact turning oneself away and off the world and put it all rather exclusively on oneself just to oneself and it's a pity that view is so predominant because it doesn't understand or acknowledge the, the insignificance in life of digging deep for resources and we've spoken so much of our culture about resources externally what's in the ground, what's in the ocean and uh, etc. But very little understanding that there is the parallel of unlimited riches and unlimited resources which can be discovered from the depths of being which can have an important significant influence about the way we live our life and the way that we relate to the world around us. And some of you who have... Uh, um, connections with uh, activities of uh, service for others and certainly in the room here there are quite a few of you in various fields and professions there are a number of you who are involved in various forms of disciplines and uh, trainings and um, a number who are just in a general exploration of what it is to, to be in this earth any kind of activity which involves doing for others and treating others with the same kind of degree of uh, affection and respect as one wishes to be treated is, I think, really to enter uh, into um, major areas of challenge of one's whole relationship to life. Once one says, others matter and therefore the activities of my life need to consider, really genuinely consider uh, other people, it will have to bring into focus every other relationship we have to life. And that's the power of it. If one genuinely does, it brings into consideration what one reads, what one studies, what one talks about, if people that one associates with. One is con interested in what it means for service to others, it brings into the whole idea of what our roles are, our relationship to the service, our relationship to money, 
our relationship to the future and security. Every area of our life needs to and must come to the surface if one is interested in the welfare and the service of others. And if it's a genuine focus and a genuine kind of commitment, others being treated equally as oneself, it also implies that for one thing to take place in a focused way in life, it has to make room. Other things rather have to make room for it. One can't have one activity in life without the whole universe in a way adjusting itself to that activity. So if the activity is called service, whatever the form and manifestation of it, that interaction with other people tends to mean that many other things will get put aside. And one of the features of this, which I've noticed in many movements and in many forms of service, people can start off with um, an act of enthusiasm and passion for some kind of service for other people. And really putting out the energy, putting in the time, working the hours, sustaining the, uh, uh, the focus. And there's a period of time, not always for everybody, in which in the initial period of it, it's, um, it's joyful, it's worthwhile, one is getting a lot um, out of it, one is receiving um, positive affirmation, um, appreciation, uh, recognition, and the self, the awareness, the ego, all of that we might say, is in a way being affirmed through the action of doing for others. There may also be in the service of doing for other people um, um, a relationship which, uh, in which the results begin to come. That there is benefit. Other people's lives are changed or the environment benefits or whatever the form of service. And all of that gives nourishment to oneself. But there tends to be a kind of honeymoon period of all of this in which the, the, the pleasantness of it, the authority which one has, the communications, the feedback, all nourish and, and the hard work, all nourish. But that honeymoon period, like the other kind of honeymoon, has a kind of lifespan to it. And after a while, the action itself has to do the talking. It's not the satisfaction of the doing. It's not necessarily the warm feedback and, uh, and or the seeing of the good results that come, etc., etc. Neither of those, either the internal um, pleasure of doing nor the external pleasure that's given to one through results, etc., will of itself enable a person to carry through service as a, <clears throat> a lifetime of activity. One or the other will usually will begin to lose meaning. Either the focus and the interest goes out of it, uh, or a corruption begins to set in. And we have seen this in the spiritual religious field, that some of the biggest egos I have ever met have been in the religious life. It's such a paradox there. And some uh, situations that one hears and sees and knows about where something may, in some cases, never even started off with any inner health to it. It started off rotten and corrupt and it spread like a bad apple through a whole basket, bucket loads of them. But in some cases, it started off with some reasonable degree, not to overuse the word purity, uh, and then the corruption began to set in. And the corruption can take many forms, power being a major form of uh, corruption, uh, egotism, um, empire building, cult, 
exploitation, um, money, sex, drugs, whatever it might be. All can enter into producing a corruption which took place. Why? What happened? What went on in the communication? What went on in the relationship? What went on in, in the movement? And it's something about the, about the dynamics of the individual with other or others Something went on there which lost sight that the process itself had value. The action itself had value. The, in this case, the Dharma itself has the value. And in any kind of action of uh, um, working with others, somehow we've got to keep sight of the, of the process itself. And therefore, in that, have the capacity in life to say no where we need to say no. To say yes where we need to, need, need to say yes. And it, how very easily one can begin to lose the main stream of what takes place. And people who in, engaged in large issues of life, not just the small one-to-ones, or who are actually engaged in the field of campaigning, one has, in the widespread field of uh, campaigning, um, a tendency so easy to become so dependent on the results. And as a result, the burnout rate, the stress rate, the, disil- the feeling disillusioned rate is tremendously high. Because the results which a person may be, or group, may be working for are not coming and one forgets once again results we may never see in our lifetime may never ever see at the best we can say we are sowing some seeds but for change for radical change to, to come the action itself the conviction has to be with that and to stay steadfast with it as I say, otherwise, if we're reliant on, on the results that are coming, sometimes they are far too big for us to even contemplate achieving what one is working for. And similarly, with, within our, our, ourselves, when fear and anger begin to feed into the action, it starts to corrupt it. Not only the kind of obvious forms of egotism, of the boosting of oneself and one's identity through the role, but how fear and negativity can begin to enter into the movement of the heart, mind, speech, body and action into the world. And we need to be checking in and with ourselves about the degree, if any, of fear and anger which is feeding into what we do. Those of us who have any uh, political actions or political connections, I remember one um, at a, a meeting of uh, uh, Green, um, not not the vegetables, the Green Party, and um, and uh, socialists, left 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 wingers, and I remember being told um, with quite some degree of uh, negativity and hostility um, to, to myself uh, as, as a speaker as a, and campaigner with the Greens that when the revolution comes people like me are going to be put up against the wall and shot. <laughs> it hardly encouraged me to give support to such people. <laughs> and um, though it might be a rather extreme example that um, sometimes we have heard the voices of uh, people in this case I'm talking of the political left and there can be a negative view towards others whoever it might be running through and it, ha- it, it deters because the thought arises my God if these people ever get into power in whatever and so 
the potency of the inner life and the way that it feeds into what we believe, that relationship which I spoke on the first evening, I think, here, matters a great deal. What's coming through from the heart and the way that it feeds into um, thought, speech, and and what we address in life. And and that that, uh, awareness of that, many situations where you and I hear something which we find unacceptable. It's an insult to groups of people. It's an insult to uh, a thoughtful and caring approach to life. And quite often, we don't say something. And in a way, when we say nothing whatsoever, it tends to leave the person totally with their view. And the thought then arises inside of us. Well, anything I say is not going to make any difference and it's only going to reinforce that person's viewpoint. And we can hear this in a conversation, on a plane, in the train, in a chance meeting, being at somebody's home, or listening to it, or whatever. And I think too often our voices, especially in spiritual circles, tend to be too passive, too accepting, too non-critical, too trying to be open, too spacious, and we can then sacrifice. You know, one important voice that we have is the is the voice which is willing to make a statement and make a protest about something. And I think when we hear things which are gross, crude, uh, in various ways, and we find it offensive, gross generalization, something needs to be said. And that whatever said may just be in the form of a question. Do you realise how repulsive I find your opinion? (laughs) So, not a tactical question, (laughs) but fairly upfront, straightforward, and totally unambiguous. And then, thank you. The question is the answer. <laughs> and too easy, too often there's a kind of cautiousness about us or uh, a resistance or uh, a withdrawal or not wanting to, to uh, rock the boat. And I think sometimes we need to with one sharp one-liner or one question to be able just to uh, rock the boat and rock the boat of the person's mind just so that they do hear that there are voices who don't put up with such uh, uh, um, views and opinions which are unfair and often totally out of touch with the realities and the sensitivities of people. All all of this requires, again, um, uh, a faith, as I said in the process, without without any expectation on, on the result. The movement of truth, in a way, the movement in this case of honesty as best as one knows and sees it, which matters a great, a great deal. And the outcome, that we will, that we will never know. Or, or, or we might do. When we don't, when we tend to be too sweet, too polite, too nice, um, too good for our own good, that when we are like, like that, unfortunately, the voice of protest inside of us is, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, is still there. And what happens is that it builds up and builds up quite, builds up quite significantly. And I give a, a, this without mentioning um, names. There is one um, spiritual uh, teacher and um, uh, in Asia, an Asian uh, teacher. And there was some concern and nobody wanted to uh, say too much um, about it. It was nothing serious or, or, or dramatic or 
immoral or unethical or anything of that, or, or that order. But there was certainly there was some concern, and one, including myself, would hear about it from time to time. And all I could say, I, uh, knowing some of the people involved and, and the teacher, was all you can do is to bring it up, is to give feedback. And that might take in a, uh, a meeting, it might take in the form of a, of a letter or whatever, just to state your concern about something which is being said and said repeatedly enough that um, it's generating some worry, concern and confusion. And for quite some time, the boy, the teacher concerned, um, just didn't take any notice. And he was well, it's not taking notice. It's still the same thing. It's still being said, still being uh, repeated, and it, and it creates some confusion amongst people. And I said, don't worry. Just keep quietly, but insistently, in different ways, um, express the concern. And one knows that drop by drop, these things, whether a person likes it or not, teacher or not, begin to enter into the psyche into the being and at some point some response to it will come and sure enough the time went by within, within uh, a year or two there was a significant kind of uh, response and a definite caution from that teacher about what he was saying so we can say well I tried and nothing happened but one explores it again one uses the cooperation of, of others. One organises. One puts the information out, etc., etc. Whatever it might be about. And I say, one keeps exploring these things. It's the will of people who bring about change. And there is no force in the world which can withstand the determination of the will and the will of people when they work together to bring about change. And that aspect of all, all of that as I say, maybe we never, ever, if at all see the changes which we explore in our own lifetime but one's got to take the interest of that and put it in ways which are what our concern is but then the person may be listening and say I've been trying to change my partner for years and I don't think I'm going to see it in my lifetime. <laughs> so why should I stay with him or her or, or, or whatever? And in those kind of re- relationships as, as well, particularly on um, these areas of spiritual um, matters, you know, I have had over the years, obviously, and some of you as well probably, many conversations about relationships with partners and all that's implied. And I think as a very rough, um, um, very rough kind of criteria, if, for example, a person is, uh, maybe if they even apply here, deeply interested in the exploration of spiritual life, that requires a lot of time, a lot of sacrifice, uh, a lot of deliberate focus selecting of some things in one's life and doing less of the other. And that less of the other might be less time with the partner. That may be a fact of it. And what's the response from the partner? He or she may have no interest in these, in these things. They, they would find it absolutely bordering on the ridiculous <laughs> to be observing one's breath. Why, why should one do that unless one's having a heart attack or something? <laughs> And so it can be a completely foreign realm for some people to be in. And I think in that some are, and I've heard this enough over the years, are actively hostile. Actively hostile. The person, the partner may feel it's ridiculous. They feel compelled to put it down. It's an escape from the real world. It's an avoidance of responsibilities. It shows an insensitivity to the home life, to the relationship, to the marriage. And there's a consistent, negative, reactive, cold, put-down which is taking place. 
And so the partner who's interested in spiritual things has to, for some do, has to face that. I would say, regardless of all the situations, that means financial dependency, children or whatever, if one is in a situation where there's hostility, negativity and the putting down of uh, spiritual explorations, sometimes the only answer is to speak with one's feet. Leave him. Go. Finish. It's not worth it. It's too big a task to undertake in life uh, to be in a relationship with someone who's showing nothing but negativity, hostility and, and, and put down. It's too much. As some people have said to me over the years, they come on retreat and the warmth, the kindness, the receptivity. They get home, they open the front door and they get a blast of cold air at, at them, if, if not more. Oh, you're back. <laughs> and then out comes the aggression and the negativity which is built up over a few days. And then the person says, oh, I should, I try to send him or her loving kindness. And, <laughs> and all I got was, where's my dinner? And <laughs> whatever. So again, some situations, it's expecting and asking too much of oneself. And I say they're not, not worth living, living in. And one of the, uh, least the values that having broken away from, many have indeed, from the religious view which the, that marriage is a sacrament and, uh, it, and marriages are made in heaven until death do us part must be one of the most eccentric conclusions <laughs> that human beings have ever come to in, in the history of uh, humanity. And... So, so, some situations where it's best to go. Best to go. And other situations can be where the person or the partner in uh, the relationship, so it doesn't cause stress and stress, because relationship isn't an element, an aspect of service, of course, where the partner just doesn't understand. It's just not in their league. It's not in their focus of interest. And for that kind of uh, situation, the partner may be, and very beautifully as many are, very respectful of the partner's right to explore spiritual life, to go on retreat, go to, to India, to go to monastery, to do courses, to go to workshops, to meditate at home in the morning and evening, etc. And the partner says, would never dream of doing anything, has no interest to learn or to read about it or whatever, but isn't against. Just accepts the partner's right to do these things. And I think in those situations then, though the partner who loves the spirituality may feel some limitation, and as many have said to me, men and women, I really wish my partner was uh, interested. I really wish I could talk with him or her about these things, but it's not their interest. They're just not their cup of tea then if so, can one say, okay, what I do know um, and do connect with, it, that I appreciate, that I acknowledge, and therefore it might be that the nourishment of spiritual life and exploration of it may have to take place to quite some degree outside of that relationship, outside of that partnership. And, and therefore uh, the relationship uh, can stay can sustain, sustain itself because there is appreciation and respect for each person independently of whether the person engages and explores these things. Other situations, of course, <coughs> in relationship can be <coughs> where two people have a very strong, caring, mutual interest, do have a love of these things, do uh, move in similar networks or in similar traditions, and have a strong connecting and bonding. And one thinks, well, you know, how nice and lovely to see and know and to experience that and to see partners who have that kind of love and appreciation of these things. But in that, even though the uh, uh, closeness 
may be very strong in that regard doesn't give any guarantee of continuity of relationship. And two people can be very spiritual, do a lot of great deal of uh, practice, and be very, very committed, and um, if we have PCs, politically correct, we could have SCs, I suppose, spiritually correct. And there. But what often isn't taken into account is the degree of um, difference of change, inner change, consciousness change, which can take place between two people, from one person and the other. And so both may have very strong in, in, interests. And then, one, the way that it manifests is that suddenly he decides to go off to Thailand, shave his head, put on ochre robes and go to the cave. And this tends to be a bit of a threat to the marriage. Oh, the, uh, the other um, 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 partner decides to go to another country and whatever, may ordain or to do a long course or a very long retreat or etc, etc. And so the kind of changes which go on in and with people in relationships can be such that it again doesn't give a more secure marriage because consciousness can change quite significantly. And I think all these things have to be explored and looked at and sometimes faced in, in life. And others, and, and particularly I'm thinking here of the network of people who are not in relation, not in relationship and, and the network of friends, contacts, spiritual life tends, if it's a good network, to take some of the pressure about being in relationship or not being in relationship off. It's usually some indication of isolation and privatization of self. Usually, some people in in relationship think, oh, I wish I was out of a relationship. And if I was out of a relationship, I'm sure I'd be enlightened. Even though I like my partner very much, but it stops me from really doing my practice. And one always has the convenient object which stops, which is called the partner, you know, or the children, or, or whatever it might be. And we just need, genuinely, for those of us who know what it is to be in a relationship, what it is to be out of a relationship, you know, to actually sincerely believe that human being that one knows is an obstruction to awareness and realization really is off-center somewhere. And the fact that the same occurs when considerations come and every retreat a number of people usually bring up in one-to-ones or small groups the area of parenting as well. All of these become areas of uh, concerns and sometimes through biological impulses obviously and emotional ones through the movement of time and, and age and I notice for both men and women the area of fathering and mothering can become quite an issue there. And wh- will that happen? Does that need, need to happen? Or will it take me away from spiritual life? And those things do need a great deal of care and, and exploration. But again, it's a great pity if, in all of that, we then start fixing an idea based on the self and the movement of self about parenting being something I must have or something I don't need. Not to lose sight of the movement of self, and as the Buddha rather uh, uh, said once, he said, we need to increase our wisdom in the world, not our circle of relatives. And there's some point there, and when our circle of relatives does increase, I increased mine by one about 14 years ago, and others are increasing theirs as we sit here, <laughs> that in all of that, it means change. It means exploration. It means things that one, which one could do before, one may not be able to do for a period, etc., etc. But none of that inhibits spiritual awarenesses, interconnectedness, realization of dependent arising, understanding the truth of life, 
and, and the expressions of love. And if we haven't got those well and clear with us, we tend to interpret certain events in our life as being a real problem and difficulty. And similarly with the growing number of women who I think are putting out um, a very important message and, and, and statement about life of living one's life whether in the relationship or out of a relationship and being happy and clear and comfortable with that and not um, conforming in the way that some of the demands that have been made in case women as well as on men of course about one's duty in life is to reproduce one's duty in life is to find wisdom one's duty in life is to live with uh, love and compassion and that might mean that movement through life and, and for some women working with some of those uh, sensations and vibrations and biological urges that take place there but in all of that all being embraced by an awareness of life there and if there's love there then let it extend and if there's compassion there then to let it let it extend it itself and obviously in that hardly needs me to say here but in that if one for those who do not wish to enter into parenting and for all the many uh, reasons that one doesn't and one is active in terms of being in a being in a rela- relationship you know, there's got to be enough clarity um, to have one's birth control act together to save the consequences of things. And I remember, as an example, 20 years ago in Dharamsala, one of the Tibetan doctors was giving out Tibetan medicine with the view that if a woman took one of these tablets, it would be... Um, act as a birth control pill for a year. Now, I mean, even me, celibate naive monk as I was at the the time, thought, this is the most loopy claim that I've ever heard in my life. And, but people thought, well, these are Tibetan masters, and and, uh, it's a Tibetan doctor, and and uh, revered by so many and people come, etc, etc and this um, particular pill of Tibetan medicine I think was probably one of the greatest discoveries of a fertility pill that was that I ever heard of and that several women who had taken this magic pill found themselves pregnant within weeks And the, all the consequences and the the uh, pain as well, of course, of some great great deal of difficulty uh, with that whole uh, uh, event. So again, in our relationship things, wisdom and and clarity must take priority over uh, claims and often born out of innocence and born out of devotion, but actually um, unrealistic. So again, in the process and in, in the, and in the movement of, of, of life, to be, to be very vigilant about um, of what we do in our engagement, how is that in relationship to others? How is it in relationship to others? Whether the others are called the political, or the others are called the partner, or whether the others are called children, or whatever. In a way, that doesn't matter as much as the kind of relationship we have. The kind of relationship that we have. And if we can keep checking in with ourselves, keep looking at ourselves, and keep getting caring and supportive feedback, then, as I say, the role doesn't matter so much, the identities that we have don't matter so much, the results of actions don't matter so much, and there's a sustaining power in our way of being in the world there. And certainly one of the things in the spiritual, in the peace movement, to give a, very, a good illustration, where it's gone from huge numbers of people, you know, tremendous momentum was built up 
and in that momentum, I think it reached its uh, peak um, in the New York Peace March to the uh, UN, in which one and a quarter million people marched together in um, protest against uh, nuclear weapons and hopefully against all forms of uh, weapons. And, and then those waves come and pass. And quite often, not always of course, quite often, it's not just the, only the peace workers, but those who have a strong spiritual foundation that keep these things flowing along and keep them alive and keep the voice there, even when the numbers are very small. And I'm thinking here of the Buddhists, I'm thinking here of the Quakers, who have such a long history of sustained commitment, in this case, to non-violence and, and uh, the trust in that process, still actively involved, still working for peace, still um, engaged in um, various uh, demonstrations. And to give a, a small illustration of what I mean, I referred last night to uh, Etty Hillison and uh, her, uh, her death along with many, many others at Auschwitz. And in December of last year, a Buddhist organization organized um, a meeting there. About 80 people uh, met um, and uh, a friend of mine, Paula, Paula Green, who I actually just very coincidentally uh, bumped into in uh, Jerusalem. She was at a, a peace meeting uh, there. And she was helping to facilitate her, the meeting of um, a number of people in Auschwitz who were walking from Auschwitz to Hiroshima this year. And while there at Auschwitz, the, uh, uh, some of the Japanese monks who were participating and helped to organize uh, this walk, they sat down at the end of that railway track, at the end of that journey to death for uh, however many people, it was hundreds of thousands, I think, passed through uh, Auschwitz. And there in the middle of the winter, in uh, December, they sat there at the end of the track and meditated there for four days without leaving uh, the spot except for the toilet. Then they had some drink, fasting, and they had some liquid, and they went back there and sat there for another four days. And then with the, the drum, as those of you know, the, the, the Japanese monks, walked all over and all around Auschwitz, just beating the drum. And it had a, an impact, she said, on everybody who was there, and, and a, a, a reminder of human beings, human, inhumanity to each other. And that, from that point, that started the peace march and taking right through to Hiroshima and various people joining it, a number of uh, friends of uh, ours here are participating in it, some doing it for a week or three weeks or some two or three months and some, some much longer. And I just take it as one demonstration, example of people keeping alive the peace movement, keeping a, a, alive the, the work for peace and social and economic justice. And, all, all this, and so often, as I say, there's spiritual elements to all of this which feed into <coughs> the, uh, the, the political economic structure. Our steps in life, the small things that you and I do in life, are a very, very important contribution to that so that we don't have a kind of otherworldly spirituality and we do have a, a spirituality which is concerned, which is active in whatever fields you and I feel close to and connected with. And thus we keep through our experience of life the flow and the rhythm of interconnectedness really going. It's not just a meditation experience it's not just something which we have from time to time when we've let go of a lot of the personal stuff and we touch on something, but the sense and the feeling, the vibration of that, the empathy of that, the joy, the wonder of that is the steadying power because it's the true nature of things and the nature of things, the actions can come. And all of that is part of our exploration here. So let us have a couple of uh, quiet minutes together, shall Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.